Have you had a student who struggled to communicate their needs to you clearly? Maybe they had an outburst. Maybe they left the classroom. Understanding that students are in constant communication of their needs with us, regardless of the behavior that they are demonstrating. Have you wondered what it was like to be a parent of a student who has special needs? I know I have. In this podcast, we meet Kiana, a dedicated single mom to an autistic, nonverbal young boy who is six years old. I met her on LinkedIn, and I didn't realize how powerful her story was until we connected. Welcome to the podcast Unimagined, where current and former students share how they imagined education in schools could be regarding student leadership. We ask them to share about their experiences and offer advice on how we can all do better. Welcome to my podcast, Kiana. I'm so grateful for your time this morning. Today, we are taking a little different approach because you are a parent of a first grader, and we want to get a little bit of his experience as a first grader through your eyes and talk a little bit about some of the things that you have faced as a parent. Kiana, will you please start by sort of just sharing your story and Tristan's story. I'm so excited to be on this podcast today talking about my Tristan, who is in the first grade. Tristan is diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, as well as ADHD and sensory processing disorder. He does have a global developmental delay, so that has cognitively impacted him, and he presents a number of auditory processing issues, as well as some mood and emotional behavior challenges. Beyond a diagnosis and the clinical assessment. He is rambunctious and a cuddle bug and playful and loves learning songs, adventure, and headstands. Would you mind describing a typical day for your son in school? In school, he would get in the bus and we would use the wheels on the bus song. That's his favorite motion. We prepare this year with social stories, though he's very cognizant of what it is to pick out his blue polos and his khaki uniform shirts and put them on in the morning. We sing a good morning song. He goes in the bath and it's time for his pancakes because he loves his pancakes. He is a carbs man. And then it's time for him to get on the bus and go to school. He's there for about a half a day. Then the bus or myself 
myself would transport him to, at the time, a behavior intervention clinic for the rest of the day until it was time to pick him up. That behavior intervention at the time was ABA model, which was all about socialization, appropriate skills, hopefully de-escalating him, addressing some of the maladaptive or behaviors that were simply just not making him successful. What would be defined as him not being successful on a typical interaction. He's so smart. And keeping in mind that Tristan is nonverbal. So with that speech impairment, he is using often his behavior as a form of communication, as in a way to empower himself as a tool. So I, let's say that he is overwhelmed and I'm having a lot more perspective of this since we're doing a new learning model. The behavior and him not being able to really regulate himself and struggling with being able to communicate his needs at that moment, such as I'm overwhelmed, I'm anxious, I don't understand this concept. We might get filling of the arms. We might get some hitting. We might get some pushing away. We might get some eloping behavior so that he can remove himself from the negative experience. And of course, in a classroom setting in particular, that can be deemed disruptive or difficult or non-compliance. And that language of aggression and anger, I think is, is an easy to use, but what we really want to empower Tristan, of course, is to begin to have the skills necessary to feel that he's competent, even if it's competent and communicating what he needs at the moment. Follow-up question, what would an educator who is in a classroom setting with Tristan, what would be some strategies that they would use when he would use some of those disruptive behaviors to communicate his discomfort? So him communicating his discomfort and those being inappropriate behaviors or unsafe behaviors for others or those around him, the ABA interventionist would, first, we can't go to the extreme of restraint. I think that in the classroom setting, particularly in some of the special education tracks, there might be a scenario where it's needed, but we definitely want to have some other tools before we think about restraint or what's often called PBIS, positive behavior intervention supports. And so in that case, in ABA, we would really try to set the expectation for Tristan using visual timers, as well as establishing a sensory diet for Tristan. In addition to Tristan does very well with visual aids, keeping in mind there is an auditory processing issue. So saying Tristan just wait, or it's not time yet, he may from a brain or neurological level not be able to fully grasp that concept. But having a timer or they actually broke it down where they had these markers each hour when a task was done. And then the goal and incentives was you get to go home and it had a picture of my car. So visual aids, setting timers for Tristan and positive reinforcement. He loves signing. He loves incentives. So finding a way that's not based on bribing to be able to reinforce positive behavior to him. There are a number of things with the ABA model that I don't necessarily subscribe to and I think are problematic and that any intervention is not a one-size, one-fit program. There are going to be things that children just don't respond to, especially as he's getting older. We did two and a half years of ABA and I left really after seeing how psychologically distressed he was. I felt that it was an important decision to take him out of this environment and reassess. I could continue to make him comply, but his aggression was escalating. And it's easy on data to say his aggression is escalating. But as a parent, I believe, what is my son trying to communicate to me that I'm not listening or that we're not understanding? And naturally, he is not making the best decisions in this moment. But let's humanize him as a six-year-old child, neurotypical or neurodivergent, and say, what can we do to get him the help we need? Again, what is what 
what is he trying to say that I'm not grasping? You bring up a really critical point for me as an educator in really reflecting on that negative behaviors from my standpoint or negative behaviors from peer standpoint is often an attempt to communicate. And I think what you are pointing out is really that we are not super adept at understanding different methods of communication. What's really hitting me in this conversation is how often I, as an educator, ignored negative behaviors that were meant to communicate something to me and brushed them off as that's not acceptable. That's not behavior that we allow in the classroom. But there's no kid that doesn't want to learn. Right. It's about the environment that we create for that learning to happen. Tristan was clearly communicating the best way that he knew how that the environment that he was in was not suitable for him. So tell me a little bit about why you think maybe that environment wasn't the best place for him. I first want to say that educators do, especially public educators, are doing the best they can with the resources, with the time they have available, with the student populations and ratio. So I do understand that it's not a simple way of just simply saying that they could have tolerated him more in the classroom. I think what's really important for me as a parent is to be able to say, how is he successful? I think first, He needed sensory integration and diet and that to be a part of the classroom setting, knowing that he has sensory processing issues and he's a sensory seeker. What are we doing to support him? There was a sensory room at the school, so he would have sensory breaks. But my thought is instead of always taking him out of the classroom, what methods of sensory integration are going to make him successful in the classroom? Because that's not the ideal thing. And that model sets him up to always feel like if I'm overwhelmed, I can leave the situation where I feel overstimulated. Tristan had an FBA, a functional behavior analysis, and what I hoped that would do going into the school year was have interventions in the place when he does have a behavior that is considered inappropriate or is not setting him up for success. What I have personally found reading through the FBA and his IEP as he's transitioned from that learning model is really we're only using those behavior interventions when there is a negative behavior. That is an incredible misconception. We want to be reinforcing behavior all the time. Again, keeping in mind he's six years old, we're struggling with some connecting issues as far as neurologically. If we reinforce to him only when negative behavior, do we have a plan, then that's what we would see on a good day. He wouldn't really get any feedback, but it was a bad day that this is what happened, this is what happened. And that shows me we are not reinforcing this daily. And for any child, if we are slack, if we are lenient with the interventions and supports that we're putting in only on negative or negative behavior, then we are reinforcing to that child, you can do this and leave the situation versus we are going to help you find ways to manage your behavior and stay in the classroom. That is an oversimplification, understanding that some things require someone to be removed, some things are unsafe, but that reading over that FBA and IEP that I saw, if this behavior happens, we will ignore Tristan, or if that behavior persists, we will remove him and restrain him. That might be necessary, but on the days where it's a behavior or two, or he's just non-compliant, what is the plan in those moments? Because he has to buy into this plan and believe this plan as well. Tristan was continually getting the message that if he wanted attention, 
he had to act up. For me as an educator to hear that piece, I think that's a really valuable piece of information that you just shared. Kids are thirsty for attention. And so they're going to do whatever it takes to get that attention. It's a simple shift. Attend to the kids who are doing the right things and give them that positive reinforcement, that positive feedback. Every child wants to be seen. Every child wants to be heard. It's no different whether you're nonverbal, verbal, neurotypical, neurodivergent. Thank you for sharing that. You mentioned a little bit about that teachers are doing all that they can with the resources that they have. Tell me some of the resources that were available or were not available at the school district where you were sending Tristan. He was in a Title I urban district. For those not coming from an education background, there are a number of things that might attribute to a Title I category. So that's funding, that's socioeconomical status of the students, over 90% likely being able to identify Pan-African or what we would coin the term Black who qualify for free reduced lunch. Looking at where we are as far as even the city and the crime rates, there is a huge racial segregation issue. There are a number of things that are needed to be done as far as rehabilitating the city and economic development. So all of that plays into the school system, that plays into the student population and the type of students that educators are dealing with. And when I say type, I'm also referring to the background, the emotional challenges, the problems they may be facing, the resources and support they may have. That also means that that impacts the likely the pay for which teachers are being paid. They did have what we would consider a PBIS or positive behavior behavior intervention support program. There were behavior interventionalists through the school. What I expected is that there would be someone tracking and following up with Tristan's progress and then not just writing the FBA or being a part of the IEP meetings, but regularly watching those metrics and goals and seeing what's working or what's not working or with what we need to readdress. I was disappointed with the lack of involvement and also the fact that when the behaviors began to escalate, it it was really only after having the conversation that we may need to consider transitioning Tristan out of this model that at the time that educator said, well, let's call the behavior intervention and specialist who was not at the school, but on a district level and they came down to the school. And I thought, wow, again, this system is broken because there should be someone monitoring this caseload and you should be able to have some sort of feedback that you can give that's practical about what's going on either before it gets to this point or for us to come up with a plan or review. When I began to have the conversation to assess if this is the best model or best classroom environment, I was asked, well, do you want to consider having another IEP meeting? I did not feel like that was going to be in Tristan's favor. And we had maybe a month to two months of data. We didn't have six months. We didn't have 10 months to be able to get a fair perspective of what's going on with Tristan. And I want to use a tangible example for those who might be listening. When we say Tristan will reduce hitting from three occurrences a week to two occurrences a week or one, that is great on paper. But then the deeper question is, what is the plan to reduce or eliminate that behavior? How are we communicating to Tristan that this is an appropriate behavior? And what are we doing to show him this is what you can do to communicate the need or express your behavior in that moment? If we rewrite these goals, but the in interventions or support isn't there, then I have an issue. If we're quick to use terms like aggression and anger, but not say, 
say, does Tristan present anxiety disorder? Does he present a panic disorder? Is there something from him not feeling psychologically safe? And what can we do in the classroom? Does he need to have play therapy? These are the things I think that <laughs> seem extra, right? Or or above beyond. There was a comment made from the behavior interventionist when Tristan was having some problems and she gave me feedback. She said, you know, Kiana, you know, you know as a parent what's best. You are empowered to know what's best. And this is more than I've seen done on a public education level. Some people might see that as a compliment. I felt like I was being gaslit a little bit. Just because this is what we've seen at a public education level doesn't mean that this is acceptable. And it doesn't mean that more can't be done, not just for my child, but for many children. I had enough resources to be able to start to navigate what if we consider another model. But there are many parents, again, especially thinking about the socioeconomic status and the demographics of where we live, the median income being about 34,000, there are a number of parents who wouldn't have any idea how to navigate that. And let's not pretend like logistics, as far as being a working parent, don't play into, okay, but if my child is not at school, where is he going to be? I wonder if we can go back in Tristan's history and you can tell me a little bit about the challenges of where you live and how just getting Tristan diagnosed and helped and all of hurdles that you faced from the location in which you live. I think that it's really important to share my my story too, because they're so intertwined. And sometimes, especially as parents of these brilliant neurodivergent children, Tristan and I's father separated when he was a few months old. And I relocated to have the support in Georgia and be around him. Him being a month old from a neurological level, from a nervous system level, he has felt everything that I has felt as far as nervousness, sadness, anxiety. Tristan had jaundice. He had some breathing and difficulty issues when he first was born. I had gestational diabetes. So there has been a fight everything from birth onwards for Tristan. All of that plays into his experience. We move to Georgia and really at the time, he just had some developmental delays. The first thing was feeding. It was about one and a half to two where we saw a global the developmental delay as far as he hadn't spoken yet, where you start to see some of those milestones. He seemed to be struggling. And at that time, it was his pediatrician that said, you know, I think we need to get him evaluated for diagnosis. And this time he was one and a half going on on two. And they had to send a referral out. In our state, there's like a developmental center and you deal with a development developmental pediatrician. And that's pretty much the only person in our local regional area that gives a diagnosis. Again, then we got speech. He's having the toe walking. We see some sensory issues. He's having feeding. We're navigating all of this without an official diagnosis at the time. When the referral is made, it takes about eight months, but they set the expectation that it could be any time from one to one and a half year before you hear. For us, we were just fortunate and we happened to get in there in eight months. But if you think about the window and child development and how critical every month is, let alone a year, 
to a year and a half that some children are waiting, I think even two years in this area, for a diagnosis. How insurance authorization works for a number of places, that authorization code and that diagnosis code of autism is often needed to navigate to other pediatric therapy services. So it was critical that we did that because that acts as our golden ticket to be able to get him the services that he needs. I called around one particular pediatric provider or service provider said, you know, I'll put him on the list and we can get him in for an evaluation, but I want to let you know for speech alone, the waiting list is a year, a year, <laughs> a year at, at minimum. Another place said for speech, what we do is we cannot book out in advance. Like we can't say that every Tuesday he's going to come in. We will have to call you at the end of the week and determine if we have enough spots for this week. When you talk about underserved communities in area, when you talk about areas that there is an overwhelming need and demand, but not enough certified or specialized individuals, it is by far where we live. (laughs) By far. Well, and I can't even imagine as a working parent, one, all of this depends on you having insurance. So you have to keep that job and trying to be able to find time at a moment's notice to get your child services. It didn't seem to relieve anything either when he got to school age seemed that that balance of working full time and caring for a child with neurodivergent needs seems to be really at conflict. It's often at conflict. So just to keep in perspective, like pre-pandemic, Tristan was in speech feeding occupational. And so he was having a model of, at this time, an early child find program for a few hours, then going to ABA, then full-time ABA. So I would go from south to north, (laughs) city up, ABA, about eight hours a day. I'm still working at this time. And it was after being hospitalized with what I now suspect was COVID in March of 2020 that I felt like as a parent, this is just not a sustainable model for me. And I'm sure that many special needs parents can attest to your body breaking down about how do I get my child the services they need and how do I maintain a level of health and sanity? in the midst of this. So it did not get easier going to school while I hoped. It actually was more complex because of the bureaucracy and the politics with school and navigating IEPs. And for a child that's considered severe, I don't like using those words, but when we're talking about emotional mood challenges, learning differences, audio target processing, and then the other health issues that he can't communicate, GI issues, toileting challenges, that is a whole lot to bring to the school setting. As a single working parent, you're like, how do I navigate any of this? Because I have to be able to sustain a life for Tristan and I. I think about the world in which Tristan must be experiencing all of these services requires time, meeting new people, practicing new skills, and he's only six now. So, I mean, his life is been very short and yet it feels more challenging to me. Tell me what Tristan is like as a young boy. Absolutely. (laughs) He is so rebunctious. He loves attention, quite observant and quite sensitive to the emotions and moods of others, particularly those that he cares about. He loves learning songs. He loves music. If you can make a song out of it, you can probably get his response. He is one of the most athletic, like he is 
working on a six pack at six years old. He loves to flip, to jump, to run. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. He loves his ball. He loves to jump. You know, they used to call him the jumping bean. So, and overall, uh, very fun loving. You know, that's part of the challenge. He doesn't all, he doesn't want the fun to stop. So we've got to learn how to make learning fun. That's de definitely my Tristan. I love that, that humanization of the person that we're talking about. Talk a little bit now about the play therapy or the RDI relationship development intervention therapy. It's definitely a new adventure for us as far as RDI. The BCB at the time that Tristan was under felt that Tristan was beyond help. I genuinely believe in the redemptive power of children and the ability for all of us to learn and be successful even if it's not in the same environment. So I looked into RDI model and I had an incredible appointment and I really think that it will change my life. So I was honest about the problem behaviors, where we were at with learning styles and learning models, as well as removing him from the ABA model. She said, well, I will tell you that what I believe is that we won't make a child do anything. This was a paradigm shift for me as a parent because I treat him like this little adult. Instead of humanizing him and his real struggles, looking at compliance and how many times he was having to be prompted to perform or achieve the desired outcome or behavior. But she's like, maybe there's a breakdown in his foundational understanding. And because of that anxiety or inability to organize. So what we're doing is literally building the foundations. He said, yes, he's quote unquote nonverbal, but maybe there is an element of language that we're missing of really empowering Tristan and empowering Tristan through play. We're only two sessions is I've never seen Tristan respond. RDI is, is about play-based learning. It's incredible to watch him understand the foundations of play. She will create a pattern through play. And then instead of him being a passive participant, she will wait till he responds. And after he responds, she will then continue on behavior. And she will say to me, you see how the brain is moving. You see how as he felt more competent, we start having less movement. And it's incredible to see the power between just kinesthetic movement, motor, but also how children want to learn. Yesterday, he had a bit of a breakdown and the session, you know, he got about 15 minutes in and he said, I'm over it. And he grabbed his blanket and he said, I'm taking a nap. <laughs> it's a 30 minute session and 15 minutes. And she said, that's fine. Because what I want to reinforce to him is that if he communicates to me that he needs a break or rest, he can trust and believe that I will honor and respect it. Another just mind altering moment for me as a parent that everything that I have enforced and been taught is all about compliance instead of how can we build the trust between us where you can trust that this is a safe place and you can also trust that you are competent to do the task. The kids are communicating to us when we listen. And I am just like you as a mom, I have been in compliance mode. And I'm sure in my classroom, I would say to educators, to his teachers, that what was Tristan trying to communicate that we weren't listening? If we get beyond that communication was inappropriate, if we get beyond that he was not making the best decisions on how and the method in which we communicated, we look to see what was the need that was not being addressed. If we lose sight of that need. And if we lose sight of that child not having that need met, we have lost that child. What advice do you think that Tristan might give you? I think that he might tell me that I'm doing my best mom and I need some help right now. I know that I don't always do the right thing, but 
I'm a lot smarter than people think I am and a lot stronger than people think that I am. As we're doing the homeschooling, I'm having to adjust to his learning needs. And it's really showing my impatience and my temperance issues. But when he'll get something wrong, he'll look at me, he'll shake his head like, no, I didn't get it right. And in that moment, he's looking to see how am I going to respond? Am I going to shame him, admonish or criticize to him? And it's challenging me to look at again. Maybe it's not just Tristan didn't get this right, but this learning style is the model that he doesn't respond to. And then he starts to act up what he is telling me. And he's advice. He's saying, mom, this is really overwhelming and I'm struggling. And furthermore, it's easier for me to do this than to acknowledge that I don't know how to do it. He hates feeling incompetent. He hates feeling like he cannot achieve. And he would rather remove himself or completely deflect and give himself what makes him feel powerful and control in that moment than to acknowledge this process, this concept. I don't understand. I don't grasp it. That's hard for any of us. I am picturing him shaking his head at you and looking for your approval or disapproval on an answer. I am pushed right back into my classroom and I see those students looking to me to validate their answers and how in education we we don't celebrate that learning. We celebrate the right answer only and how we do that right right from the beginning when children are young. And I think Tristan is communicating directly to that need of wanting that validation, wanting that approval. And I applaud you as a mom taking on that role as mom, as teacher, as advocate, as champion for your young boy, that you are giving him a place where he can grow. And I do think he's probably telling you, I am smarter than most people think. I want to thank you so much for all of your valuable insights. I want to ask you to, when we're done, give your boy a big hug and tell him thank you for being who he is and giving us this opportunity to learn from him. This was a really, really valuable interview. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. I know that my story is is not the only one that of a parent that might feel alone or overwhelmed. So if I could be a, a light in a darkness and overwhelm that we face, I'm, I'm so happy to, to have done that today. Thank you for listening to another episode of Unimagined. What struck me in this episode was how I focus on the negative as a teacher, which only communicates to my students that negative behavior is the behavior I'm looking for. I also thought it was really incredible to think about what it must be like for a student who is trying to communicate information and that information is not received. I loved talking to Kiana, learning from her, and also listening to Tristan's story. I want to share an analogy about a basketball team. If you are creating a basketball team, the likelihood that you are going to stack your team with natural basketball athletes is pretty slim. You know, as a coach, that you have to train athletes to become better athletes. You have to coach them. You have to guide them. Leadership is the same thing. We have to train leaders. We have to guide leaders. We have to coach leaders. 
And if you or somebody you know is someone who could use some of those leadership trainings, I have a great program for you. It's called the Leadership Academy. And if you search peers, not fears, you will come across my Leadership Academy, which is available for unlimited access to do leadership training. It is broken into modules. You can do them in order or out of order, whatever you need. You can repeat them for $500. You have access to this Leadership Academy for a lifetime. The theme music for this podcast, Unimagined, was written and produced by another fellow educator, Keith McClendon. Thank you.